morning. So today's scripture reading is Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 5. Isaiah chapter 2, 1 to 5. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. House of Jacob, come and let us walk in the Lord's light. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thanks. How many of you have been enjoying watching the FIFA World Cup? Now, there can't be too many hands because you're here. Uh, you've got seven minutes to get home, I think, right? Canada starts, the Canada game starts at 11. Now, I have to be honest, well, the entire world is watching football. And yes, I'm going to call it football. I mean, literally the entire world except for Canadians and Americans, and not even all Canadians and Americans, because a lot of us who here are Canadian call it football, right? So I'm going to call it football because that's what it is. If that's what the entire world calls it, we should get on board, right, Canada? Anyway, so the football that Monica and I have been watching has actually sadly not been the World Cup, uh, but our football has been of the Ryan Reynolds variety. <laughs> you know, the, the actor who played like such cinematic greats as Free Guy and Deadpool and of course you know the greatest film ever made Green Lantern. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? He's a Canadian gem come on. Anyway we've been we've been watching a, a documentary called Welcome to Wrexham and it's about a Welsh football club that was purchased by Deadpool himself Ryan Reynolds and another actor named Rob Milkenny. And you'll, if you're like me, you'll have to IMBD him because I actually didn't know who he was before I started watching the show. Content warning, if you're thinking about watching it, as you'd expect of Ryan Reynolds or football in general, there's a lot of swearing in it. So. But one of the episodes was focused on a part of football that is an unfortunate reality of really any sport fan base, but is especially true of football, and it's hooliganism. Isn't that an awesome word? It's a funny sounding word, but for something that is not at all funny. A hooligan is actually a person, uh, historically young men, who engage in rowdy and violent behavior. It's usually part of a large group or a gang. So football hooligans, then, are those groups of fans that go around destroying property, beating up fans of their rival teams, running onto the pitch to fight and to punch I mean, just this week, fans of Mexico and Argentina's football clubs got into a brawl in Qatar, uh, the hooligans, these football hooligans. In fact, Croatia is actually known for their hooliganism, so it'll be interesting to see what happens today, Canada versus Croatia. There could be some uh, 
unnecessary blood flowing in the streets of Qatar today. I mean, it sounds terrible, but this is actually football. And anyone who's actually a football fan is extremely aware of this reality. Now, I always assumed that these kinds of brawls over sports was just because people were like caught up. You can tell I'm not a sports guy. People were caught up in the moment of passion and excitement, right? That they just they lost control in the moment of passion. And they just spilled out into the streets because they were just, oh, so passionate about that moment, right? Maybe I'm the only person who thought that. But that's not actually the case. These football hooligan gangs actually agree on a place and a time to meet up. They don't accidentally bump into each other walking in the streets of Qatar or any city. They plan these. They are scheduled times to come together and to meet Hordes of hooligans coming together so that they can comfortably talk about why their players are better than the others. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They literally plan on a time. They schedule a place to come together to beat each other up. That's why these battles often don't happen around the actual game. They'll happen hours or days before or after. They're planned events. This isn't about people with no self-control getting caught up in the moment. This is premeditated violence because of 22 people kicking a ball around on the field. It is a lifestyle choice. And one thing that's interesting about this documentary is they actually follow one person whose lifestyle choice is to be a hooligan. Unapologetically. This is a lifestyle choice of thousands and thousands of people in the world because of a sport. And while football hooliganism, this does go back to the Middle Ages, believe it or not, the violence of, uh, of opposing sides in sports fighting each other in their name of their town or the country actually goes through all human history, and it comes up today to even on a smaller scale, even in our, our high schools, and if you watch American football, you're aware of the competition uh, between schools, the rivalries that can get violent. But sadly, violence is not just part of sport. It is a deep part of our brokenness as humans. I mean, the Bible tells us that the first brothers ever born, one killed the other one. Like, this is like right back to the beginning. And we see it everywhere. I mean, just this week alone, I didn't even have to search. I literally just one day I just opened the news and there it is. In addition to the football hooligans in Qatar, there is Russia's increasing attacks on Ukraine and then saying that they express regret for the families and the people who died. There's more mass shootings in the U.S. and Walmarts and other places all on the same day. Tear gassing and oppression of protesters in Iran. Palestinian terrorists bombing in Israel all on the same day. But we know the next week it will be the Israeli terrorists seeking revenge, right? It, this is never going to stop. And even getting closer to home, I haven't even mentioned the potential for violence that lurks within each and every one of us. When we get so angry and frustrated that we want to punch a hole in the wall or even just we want to slam a door because there's something in us that is just raging and we want to express it. We've got to get it out of our bodies somehow. And this is in all of us. How did I go from Ryan Reynolds to that so fast? Anyway, seems really bleak and devastating, but stick with me. Uh, this is the world that we find ourselves in, but this is also the season we find ourselves in of Advent. 
The season before Christmas of waiting and longing for God to come is the time when we recognize the reasons that we desperately need God to come into the world. That we desperately need God to end patterns of brokenness, of rebellion, and of violence. To God to make all things right. And this is a work that took on flesh when Jesus came. And it is something that God will complete when Jesus comes again. But yet here we are, we find ourselves in the midst of this now and not yet reality of God's peace breaking into the world. And we find ourselves like the prophet Isaiah, which Kevin read for us in a time of longing and waiting for God to come to put an end to despair and injustice and violence. This year, uh, we are going to be spending uh, uh, Advent with Isaiah, along with something that's called the, the lectionary. And so it's, I think it's important for us to be able to hear what Isaiah is saying. It's important uh, for us to lay some kind of groundwork. And so what I'm going to do, take a couple minutes. So this will, for those of you who haven't read a lot of, or maybe some of us who have read too much and have forgotten some of this stuff, um, about the section in the Bible in the Old Testament called the Prophets. Now Isaiah that Kevin read is part of this big collection of writings uh, in the Bible. And to read this section of the Bible, it is important for us to know that first of all, contrary to popular belief, a prophet is not actually someone whose job is to predict the future. That is not what a prophet does. That is not actually what prophecy is. It is not about predicting the future. A prophet is someone who speaks on God's behalf. Someone, who you, someone that God will use to tell God's people what they need to hear in the moment. When we read the prophets just trying to find future predictions, we actually will miss the main point of what they were saying. Now, the beauty of it is, is because they're speaking on behalf of God, God takes it and shapes it, and it, things will come to pass in ways the prophets never expected, which is where the New Testament will take these prophets and go, hey, it's talking about Jesus. But to read the prophets, we have to remember they actually aren't talking about Jesus. They are speaking to their time. And God is taking that message and is changing it and reforming it in deeper ways in Jesus. So to read these passages, we need to be careful not just to be looking for prophecies, looking for things of the future, but for prophecy, which is God's voice speaking into a specific situation. I personally think the best way to understand what the prophets are saying is as crisis management. All of the prophets, every single one of them, ministered in times of intense crisis. And everything that they were saying was to help the people in the midst of this crisis. Whether it was telling them why they were in the crisis or what they should do about it or offering hope for how God will bring them through it or a picture of a future that is so far off, but God is doing this thing, and so let's work alongside. A more contemporary example that many of us might be familiar with is Martin Luther King Jr. His ministry was to a specific crisis in the 1950s and the 60s. The specific crisis was uh, human rights for blacks in the United States, and he led a nonviolent fight for human rights. That was the specific 
time. His ministry was speaking specifically to this, but the hopes and dreams that he spoke about to that specific context, they still resonate today. And in some ways, they could say, be said that they were predicting the future. Some of those things have come to be, and some of those hopes and our fear future that have not yet come. His intent wasn't to predict the future, but in his own time of crisis to rebuke the sins of racism and encourage nonviolent resistance and hope. And of course, we know from this side of history with the prophets that that resistance uh, and hope and rebuke of sins by the prophets was to their time and then ultimately comes to be fulfilled in Jesus so there are two main crises in the Old Testament that the prophets are uh, talking about in the Bible. Now, the nation of Israel began as one nation. I'm not going to do the entire history of Israel, don't worry. But at this time, in this picture, there's 12 tribes, right? They're kind of in a formation. They look exactly like that. Kind of like a minion, but uh, no, they're not actually. So there's 12 tribes are in the, in the land of Israel. Once they had established, it actually only took a few generations before they were fighting and killing each other. And then the top 10 tribes split off from the bottom two tribes. The top 10 tribes was a kingdom that was the kingdom of Israel. And the smaller southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. And this is where we get the word Jews from. Judah. So Jews aren't actually, when we say Jews, we're not referring to everyone who was in the family of Israel, but the ones who are from Judah. And then these are the Israelites up here. And of course, Judah is where, Jeruz, is where the city of Jerusalem was and the temple was. So the things that, um, the temple that Kevin talked about and the passage that uh, Colin spoke about is in Judah. So the first big crisis using, you know, illustrations of uh, retro video games. First big crisis took during, century, during the 8th century uh, BC when people called the Assyrians, like Pac-Man, came and attacked the northern kingdom of Israel. So there's the two, they take them off into exile. The Assyrians then came and attacked Judah, but Judah actually managed to fight them off, and so Judah stayed. The second big crisis so remember, Israel is now gone. It <laughs> doesn't exist. They are scattered. The second big crisis, and this is 150 to 200 years after this first one, so a really long time. Then the Babylonians came, and they attacked Judah, and they were successful in the ways that their Syrians weren't, and they take, took the Judites and the Benjaminites, who were in Judah, they took them away. And then, of course, as then after some time, some of them were allowed to return to the land and start to rebuild. So these are the two big crises. And interestingly enough, well, I think it's interesting. You may be bored out of your mind, but, but don't admit it because then you know, it's like saying you don't like the Bible if you don't like this stuff. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You don't have to be a nerd to like the Bible. Isaiah the book of Isaiah actually talks about both of these crises. All of the other prophets are just speaking to one of the crises, but Isaiah actually speaks to both of these crises. We're not going to get into arguments of are there two Isaiahs or two people that actually wrote the book or not, even though, anyway, I'm going to, yeah. So let's move on. <laughs> it's for some reason it's contested, um, but uh, 
Yeah, so <laughs> chapters 1 through 39 in Isaiah. And this is with the hope that some of us will go and flip open some Bibles and look at this later. I think it's worth doing. The 1 through 39, in general, are when the Assyrians are attacking the northern kingdom and then try to get Judah, but don't. So that's what 1 through 39 are. And the second half of the book, 40 to 66, is written after the Babylonians, after they've already taken Judah away, and partially when they come back. Okay, you with me so far? You can, for people who don't know me, I, I like the good groundwork stuff. I find that this is helpful. Um, and if you don't, um, the game started, so you could probably stream it on your phone. <laughs> so during that first crisis, in the first half of the book of Isaiah, the prophet is in Jerusalem. So the prophet is in the part that isn't being taken away. The Assyrians have violently attacked and carried away all of their neighboring cousins, and everyone in Jerusalem knows so Isaiah and everyone else who's around him knows that they're coming for them next. And this is where what Kevin read for us comes in. And so, of course, remember, though, this isn't like watching war on TV. This is more like you're sitting in your house and you see a horde of hooligans come and smash up and they destroy your next-door neighbor's house. And you are watching this violent act, these violent acts. The horde car- Some of the horde carries your neighbors away And then the rest of them cross your lawn and are coming to your house. So this isn't on TV stuff. This is right there. And into this, Isaiah says this. It almost doesn't even make sense in the context of the violence that's coming upon them. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So remember the ones that are still there when the rest got taken away. In these last days, in the last days, The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills. All nations will stream to it. Now, the nations are streaming to it, right? But this this is not the picture of, they're watching nations streaming to them, but to kill them. And Isaiah is giving them, no, the nations are going to come to this exalted place. One thing that's cool about this section of Isaiah is this imagery of heights. Those who think they are high are actually low, while God and the things of God are actually high. It sounds a little bit like what we know of Jesus, right? The humble will be exalted, and the exalted will be humbled. So Isaiah is talking about the mountain of the Lord, the place where the temple is, as this really high place. But it was actually just a mountain. It wasn't actually that high. Uh, it was more of a hill. But they talk about it as a mountain because it is the highest, because God is the highest, and therefore this not-so-big mountain, the hill, is actually the high place where God is. In the midst of enemies attacking them to bring them lower, Isaiah encourages the Jews that God is high above them. God's house, even on a hill, will be the highest of all mountains, and Isaiah goes on. Many people will come and say, come, come. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, this is the word for Torah, which uh, is the first five books of the Bible. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in light of the Lord. In the midst of violence, Isaiah gives us a picture of peace. This is the dream. Prophets are crisis managers, but with prophetic imagination. In the midst of war, of nation attacking nation, of religions seeking to destroy the center of other religions, Isaiah has this wild imagination to picture a time when all the nations will actually come together to the same place, but not to attack one another, but they'll come to the presence of the living God, coming together to allow God to dispute, to, to settle their disputes, to seek how to walk in the name of the Lord. And I think it's important for us to note here that Isaiah's vision is not that all people come to be one nation. This isn't all people we become Jewish and we'll all be one nation. This isn't all football teams will come together and just make one worldwide football team that doesn't compete, but they just play happily together. The picture here is the nations actually remain distinct. There's an assumption that there will still be borders and different peoples, but that the place of wisdom and arbitration and unification is one place of unity in the ways of God. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is a pretty amazing imagination as he's literally watching people come to kill him. And we see all across the world today, the weapons are being built and amassed. We as a nation are sending weapons, right? To help amass weapons to, to either to, well, in our case, it's hopefully to defend. But a lot of the weapons are being built and amassed to attack. But God's dream is that these weapons will be melted down and be made into farming tools. Instead of destroying and killing one another, God's the prophetic imagination is that weapons will be used for sustaining and for nourishing one another. There's a group in the United States called Raw Tools, and they literally do this. They invite people to donate their guns, and they take the weapons, and they beat them, and they melt them, and they shape them into gardening tools and to pieces of art. It's a way of redeeming a systemic problem that in the States... And it's not just in the States, it's all over the world, with, of the relationship to weapons, of changing it from pieces of violence into gardening tools and beautiful artwork. Shane Claiborne and Michael Martin, who are the ones who started this group, they write this. The prophets of old were not so much fortune tellers. Hey, they agree with me. Hi. I'm just kidding. Prophets of old were not so much fortune tellers as they were provocateurs of the imagination. They weren't trying to predict the future. They were trying to change the present. And they invite us to dream of the world as it could be, not just accept the world as it is. They invite us to dream of the world as it could be and not just accept the world as it is. And that takes faith. I like to think of myself as a realist, but really I'm more of a cynic. This is hard for me to dream of the world, just to not just see it as it is, but to accept it as it is, but to dream and to live like the world could be something different. They go on, peace begins with the people of God who refuse to kill and who insist on beating their weapons into farm tools. 
It is people with prophetic imagination who will become the conscience of our world. Faith is all about not letting the current reality hijack the future. Faith refuses to accept the world as it is and insists on moving the world to what it should be. Another brilliant author uh, says something similar in his book called Kingdom and Empire. The entire, we should all be laughing because that's our, our, our former senior pastor's book. You all should have read it. I'm just kidding. He writes, the suffering of war demands our imagination to find tools for making peace. Having faith and hope actually takes great imagination. And I'm going to be honest, I lack that imagination too often. The imagination to envision something different, something that seems impossible, but not only to envision it, but to live like it is possible. To live like it could be a reality. And Jesus lived like that. Now, it got him killed, but he lived like that. But it also not only got him killed, but it also brought him through death to the fullest life of any human in history, to resurrected life where death and violence have no hold, no sway, no power. Jesus lived like that, and it brought him through death, death, raising him to the fullness of humanity in the unfiltered, unlimited, unfailing presence of God. Sometimes living God's dream and imagination will lead us to death, but it will lead us through death into the fullness of what humanity can be. What does it look like to live this kind of hopeful imagination in a world where we can't even watch a football match without the threat of violence lurking around the edges? Now, first of all, I think it takes Isaiah's prophetic imagination not simply to accept the world as it is, but with faith and hope to live out lives of peace. Now, like most everything in the world, and, and this is, sounds overly simplistic, so I want to highlight there's some of, like everything in the world these days, and Christian thought there are two extremes in response to violence. On one end are pacifists who believe that violence is always wrong. And then on the other end is something called just war, which believes that violence is okay and even necessary at times and under very specific circumstances to maintain peace, to protect justice, and to punish injustice. Now, I'm not going to tell you where to fall in that or where you should fall in that, um, but I can speak for myself that I think most of the time, wisdom is somewhere in the middle. I know for myself, what I personally believe about Jesus, I'm theoretically more on the pacifist side, that violence is never the answer because violence only begets violence. But if I'm honest with myself, if someone were to harm my girls, oh man, watch out. I can, I can feel my... I mean, I wrote this yesterday, but even saying it, I can actually feel my blood boiling just thinking about it. If someone hurts my girls, oh man, that, that burns in me, and I, I go from being a pacifist to being a violent person. That's in us. That's in me. This reminds me the problem isn't just out there, it's in here. And for the, prob for the prophetic imagination of a world without violence to burn alive in me, I need to be willing to do the inner work along with the Holy Spirit, to make me a person of peace now. A Willie Hugo Perez Lemus 
and Adrian Webb are authors who write, there, write in Guatemala about violence in Central America. And they believe in the centrality of nonviolence. And they write that biblical peace transforms our thoughts, our attitudes, behaviors, actions, relationships, so that all people can live a life characterized by love, sanctification of life, truth, justice, a common good, and harmony. We need to invite the Spirit of God to do this inner work in us, even as we pursue the outer work of peacemaking. But nonviolence in the name of Jesus doesn't seem, mean simply sitting back while violence is done upon ourselves or others. Because that isn't loving our neighbor. Loomis and Weib write that peace of, the peace of Jesus is based on an ethic of nonviolence, but the nonviolence of Jesus does not passively accept evil and injustice. Rather, Jesus responds with active nonviolence to transform structures and powers that violate the most vulnerable of society. Of course, that led him to the cross, but the cross did not mean defeat. His resurrection was a paradigmatic fact that demonstrated the power of love, nonviolence, and life over hatred, violence, and death. Somewhere between pacifism that allows violence to go unhindered and allows the, 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 those who are silenced and oppressed to continue to be oppressed and vandalized. And just war that will find ways to validate power and violence. Somewhere in the middle is, is what I think is something that we are called to. It's proactive, nonviolent resistance in the name of Jesus. Now there's human theory, one human theory that resonates well with me and my understanding of Jesus that is probably more on the, is, leans more on the pacifist side, is called just peacemaking. And not just as in only peacemaking, but peacemaking that is just. It is the idea of living out nonviolence with Christ. Like peacemaking involves, sorry, living out this nonviolence with Christ and just peacemaking involves big things, sustainable economic development. Because while we think in middle class and upper class tends to think that violence comes from the poor, the reality in the entire world is that violence is done to the poor. And so sustainable economic development changes violence. Advancement of human rights. But these are huge things. There are ways that living within the realm of possibility for us who involved, aren't involved in these huge systems. Like participating in peaceful protests. Like Saturday night protests in the name of Masa Amini. Welcoming and caring for people displaced by war and violence like Syrian refugees and Ukrainian refugees is a battle against violence. Increasing our knowledge about peace practices and the ways that our economy impacts those in war-torn countries and perhaps even changing our purchasing practices. Teach children, teach adults to choose peace over retaliation. Celebrate stories of reconciliation rather than stories of revenge. Reject activities and notions that accept that hooliganism is simply part of sport. We can create or support safe spaces for women and children fleeing violence in their homes or on the streets. We can reject cultures of toxic masculinity and ask, advocate for human rights for women and all who are marginalized and victimized by religious or cultural underpinnings of white male patriarchy. 
Take a course on mental health first aid. Support efforts of restorative justice to help ex-offenders become healthy members of society. There's all kinds of little things that we can be doing to advocate to, to bring of non-violence, love, and peace into the world. We are called to be lights in the darkness, stars in a black sky, pushing against the darkness with tools of love and peace. Your light may feel small, like it is only casting away insignificant shadows, but it is still light, and it is the light of Christ. There are no insignificant shadows. Only Jesus is the full light, of course, that washes all of the darkness away. So it isn't on you, it isn't on us as a church to feel the full weight of all of the darkness, but just to be faithful in the places where you can shine a little light. We are called to keep sowing seeds in the dust of what seems like infertile ground, tilling the soil with weapons turned to gardening toils, tools, pursuing peace even when it seems like we aren't making any difference, with hope and faith and prophetic imagination that God will bring life-giving rain to sow, to grow these seeds into a harvest of peace. With this prophetic imagination for peace, dreaming of the world as it could be and not just accepting it as it is, hoping and longing for Jesus to come into the crisis of our violent world. As Isaiah says, Come, descendants of Jacob. Come, followers of Jesus. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, Violence is a part of our world, and, and we know that until you come again, um, it always will be. And Lord, we feel, I feel often that things just seem hopeless, that the difference that I can make, the difference that we as a church can make is so small and insignificant, it's almost uh, not worth it. But Jesus, through the prophetic imagination of Isaiah dreaming of this day, through prophetic imagination of others like, like Martin Luther and, and so many others who have raised up to protest, to fight against the darkness with nonviolence. We seek you, Jesus. We ask you to come. And we invite your Holy Spirit to grow in us peace, that you would help us to be people who sow seeds of nonviolence, of peace in the world, that you would help us to stand against injustice and to stand against violence, but not in ways that seek to harm, but in ways that seek to love and to restore and to grow new life of peace in our world. Amen.